Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Well, welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast. I'm really excited. Today's guest is Dan Remingay. He's the donor relations manager for the Foundation for Government Accountability, where he cultivates and strengthens relationships with FGA's donors. Prior to joining FGA, Dan served as the donor relation coordinator for a nonprofit in Illinois and as the program manager and instructor for a D.C.-based institute. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Math and Secondary Education from Olivet Nazarene University. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Trevor. I'm glad to be here. This is exciting for me as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and diving in to how to increase your relationship with your donors so that they're excited to give again. But before we dive into that, and we're going to really dig deep into tactics that people can use and go through, I want to just find out like how you got involved in fundraising and was this something you always wanted to do? Uh, it's a great question. So the short answer is no. I didn't even know that fundraising was a thing, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I go to church and they just ask for the offering plate. And uh, that was about my experience with, uh, with people asking for money. So similar to a lot of others in this profession, I sort of fell into it. I didn't really know it was a job. And then when I did find out it was a job, I wasn't interested. I said, I would never do this. It sounds terrible. How can you possibly ask people for money? That seems rude and kind of awkward. And then a few years later, I heard a fundraiser who loved her job presented in this way, which she said, I love my job as a fundraiser because people make it possible to advance a mission. And my job is to give people the opportunity to buy into a mission. And I heard that and I kind of had this, ooh, that sounds really awesome uh, kind of moment. And so looked into it and eventually took the leap into development. And it's so true. If you have a mission that you're passionate about, something that you care about, you can't advance a mission without money. If you don't have money, you're not going anywhere. You may have the best, most uh, important mission in the world, but if you don't have the finances to back it up, you're going nowhere. And so really, you have to have that money in order to advance really worthy causes. And in order to get the money, you have to have the relationship. There's another phrase that anyone in development for more than three seconds has probably heard, which is develop the relationship and the money will follow. And it's it's so true. So really, I'm in the relationship business and I've done relationships you know, ever since I was born. So it, it wasn't, I guess, as big of a leap as maybe I thought initially. Now, right now with your job, you really work on helping cultivate donors and helping them both renew and then increase their donations. Right. Is this always what you did in development or were you also a frontline like asking for money as well? Yeah, when I first started in development it was it was everything. So I was uh, I worked at a small nonprofit. I was employee number 2. I was the first full-time fundraiser other than the CEO. And so it was prospecting, it was growing the donor base, it was renewing, it was making asks, it was trying to find grantors, it was trying to, you know, working on grants. It, so it was everything including taking out the trash. So it was, you know, it just did everything. And then when I started at FGA, it was, it was a similar setup. So we act, when I first started, it was actually set up as a traditional shop where you have a portfolio of donors and the person is responsible for all aspects of the sales cycle from prospecting to closing. And so I went to meetings, I had those face-to-face -face meetings, I was trying to find new donors as well. And then we shifted because in our shop, the way that we had it, we ended up having people that were really, really good at the closing aspect of it. I was naturally going toward the cultivation piece the relationship building. And then we have somebody who, who is really good at opening the door and getting that first meeting and getting that introduction to the organization. And so it felt really natural to, instead of go buy a portfolio by a dollar amount, to flip the system. And instead of having your people divided by you know, minor donors, major donors, and you know your super donors that the CEO talks to, 
flipping that where I'm now responsible for all of our donors, the cultivation aspect of it. Other people are for getting people in the door, for getting in the door in the first place. And then that closing, when it's time for that renewal, that's somebody else in the organization. And so it's been kind of this evolution process of finding a really good niche and where you're really good at the fundraising level. Right. And this is such a unique structure. It's one of the things that people really like when they attend our workshop, when we teach this part. And it's based on business-to-business sales structure, where you have people who exclusively are looking to connect with individuals, bring in new business or new donors. And then those people are then have a meeting with what's called the closer. So that's the connector. They reach out to these new people and then you have the closer. They sit down and meet and get the donor to give and um, give them a pitch. And then it gets handed off to you, Dan, where you work as the cultivator and you help develop that relationship. And as you you know, just stated, people kind of are naturally one way or the other. Like people who are really good at closing typically aren't as good not. at follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just not a good at follow-up, right? Exactly. Which is fine. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that was a shift as well. Because again, the, the more traditional fundraising shop has been set up where it's because, okay, I brought this person in. So they're, therefore, I'm going to develop that relationship and then meet with them again when it's time to close. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But most people, as, as you said, Taryn and or Trevor, <laughs> most people, Trevor, have a one area. Let's start that, start that over. That threw me a little bit. As you said, Trevor, most people are really good at one area and then they're okay in a second area. And then they're not very good at the third area typically is, is what that happens. So you have somebody that is really good at the relationship aspect. Like I am, I can do the closing. I've done it. I'm not as good at it. And, and it's not a confidence issue. It's a, it's just a natural ability issue. Yes, I can do it, but I actually had a donor who I had a very good relationship with. I asked them to increase and he laughed. He thought I was joking because I'm such a nice guy. And I, I said, no, seriously, we want you to give more because we think that you're really important and you love and And so we want you to get deeper. And, oh, oh, I thought you were just kind of making a, making a joke. So maybe closing, not the thing that I'm, you know, I'm naturally good at. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then the prospecting piece of it for me personally, I enjoy talking with people who are already bought in. There are other people that they enjoy getting people in the door in the first place. And so why not have people focus on those strengths and those natural areas where they enjoy the most and get the most out of your development shop. It's one of the things at FGA I'm really proud of to be part of this team because we only have a handful of people on our team. We have a full-time connector, the person that connects people to the mission in the very beginning. We have uh, myself, who is the cultivator, and then we have a closer, and then we have a grant writer. So we're currently with our C3 and then our sister C4 organization, we're headed toward a $16 million budget this year, and we have four people on our development staff. It's just an amazing team, and it's a really really great structure because we don't have six people managing 100 donors each where they're struggling with one or two of the sales cycle pieces, really good at that third, but everybody, you know, nobody's really functioning on the 100% level that they could be. And so the way that we have our structure and the way that we're able to do that um, works really, really well for us. And that makes so much sense because when you have everyone focusing on, you know, the hundred donors or what have you, everyone's a generalist, right? And they can't dive into the specifics like you can on, okay, I understand this donor. I've had conversations with them. What's a way that can make them feel valued and making sure they're hearing from us, making sure they're understanding all of the work we're doing in a way that they're excited to give again when you meet with them that next year? Right, exactly. And I don't have to worry about, not worry, maybe is not the best word, but I don't have to focus or concentrate on who am I getting in the door 
because that's a different mentality. It's, uh, you know, when I was, when I was teaching, I, I taught four sections of math and one section of Spanish of all things. That was my minor and they needed somebody. And so, so I, I was, you know, I volunteered and I was also kind of placed in that position, but when I was doing that, it was a completely split day. So I'm, I'm in my language, you know, foreign language, you know, teaching Spanish mode. And then I had to switch completely to teaching math, which is kind of a language, but it's very different. It's, you know, it's a very different subject. So when you're doing that, you can't fully concentrate on either one very well. And so, you know, then I ended up later doing full-time Spanish, which was a lot easier than switching back and forth. It's similar with development. If I'm only focused on getting people in the door, then I'm constantly thinking of ways to get in touch with people. And I'm going to be able to develop new and different ways and try different experiments to get people in the door. If I'm cultivating, then I'm constantly thinking of ways to draw people in deeper. That's a different skill set and it's a different mindset than getting people in the door the first time. And if I'm closing, then yes, I need to have a good relationship with that person, but then I can focus on my pitch. I can focus on the aspects that are needed for that closing sale, so to speak, and that element of the relationship rather than, okay, what was the person's favorite, whatever, and what do I need from this? You don't have to keep track of that. The the cultivator hands you that. It's part of your script. It's part of your meeting notes. And so you can can focus on one aspect of, of the relationship. And I think it goes so much better. Yeah. And it makes a ton of sense to do it that way. I know one like the one of the big metrics you're measured on in your success and how you rank your success is on re- donor retention. And we've seen we were talking before the interview about, you know, in the last year, there's some industry data that shows how donor retention has actually decreased, even though mm-hmm. there was some new donors in 2020 with you know, people being home and learning more about other organizations during the COVID pandemic, the actual retention of donors decreased. And now it's um, now it's 44% of donors retain from year to year. And it's even worse for new donors. Like if you get someone to give a first donation, only about 20% or 19.6% of them will give a second donation. Right. Which is shocking and also terrible and heartbreaking on so many levels because what you have is you have a first time we'll start with new donors you have a first time donor who's excited about the mission they they maybe they hear you for the first time or maybe they've known about you for a while and they buy in and then one out of 5 of those people stick around and four out of 5 drop off 80% failure rate name any successful business that has an 80% failure rate with their customers. It's not going to happen. It's not sustainable. It's not a good approach. And you have to plug that hole. And so there are a couple of things that that we do for new donors, especially, and then I'll talk more about kind of our renewing donors. First of all, you treat them differently. So a new donor is not the same as a repeat donor. So if you don't have a differentiation between those two, that's step one is think about them differently because they are, they're different people. It's just like someone when you've known them for a long time, you can say things to your best friend that you can't say to a stranger. It's very different. Or you can say something to your spouse that you can't say to a coworker who you've only known for three months. It's just, it's a very different dynamic. And so with your, with your new donors, first, you have to make sure that they're not susceptible to buyer's remorse. We've all done that where you hear a really compelling pitch. You think, oh, this mission is really great. And yeah, I'm going to send them a, you know, a first gift. And then after that, you don't hear from them or you get a form letter or, and you feel like a number or you get no acknowledgement at all. Or you get an acknowledgement with an ask, which is really lovely. Uh, I just gave to you and you're not, how thankful can you be when you're asking me for more money? That's not sincere. It's, and it's a huge turnoff. And so you have this buyer's remorse that's already set in. And then if you're doing something to make that worse, then they're going to drop off. And so you want to you want to make sure that you're reaff- reaffirming that they made a great choice. 
With new donors, we have a simple one pager that we send with the formal acknowledgement letter, and it outlines what they can expect from us throughout the next year. We're not going to ask them for money all the time. We have a few things of correspondence that we want to let them know. So when they get emails from us, they know that they're not going to get hit up for money again, that we're trying to build a relationship and we are telling them what their gift is doing. And so we just do simple things like that to reinforce they made a really great decision. And then second, we can't assume that they know very much. Just because they gave doesn't mean that they know a lot about the organization. So starting at the basics and and repeating your mission, repeating some of your wins, repeating some of your past victories, telling your story over and over a couple of times, it seems redundant, but people are busy. First of all, they're not living this like you are in your organization. And then also if they're giving, a lot of people don't give to just one or two organizations. They give to a lot of different organizations. And a first-time donor doesn't remember everything about you. They don't know everything about you. It's your job to tell them, not their job to research it. And so with a new donor, repeat your mission, reinforce several times throughout the year. Hey, we're so glad that you were a new donor. We're so glad that you decided to give. That was a really, really great decision. And here's what we're doing with your money. And here's what you are accomplishing with your investment. And then third, we make sure to not, I I touched on this earlier, but we don't ask twice right away. There are some exceptions where we may ask again, maybe like at the end of the year, if somebody gave in August, we might ask again at the end of the year because a lot of people do give at the end of the year. But most of our donors give once a year and we respect that. We learn their giving strategy and their timing. And then we go with that. We fit our strategy with theirs. So we ask a lot of questions. We get to know them as well. And we don't assume that just because they gave in August, you know, this year that they always give in August. We ask, we confirm that. And so don't make assumptions. How do you ask? We just uh, either over the phone call or um, if we don't have a phone number, if they don't answer or a simple question over email, you know, people will share a lot of information when you ask questions. And with our with our system as well, it's kind of nice because again, I'm not the closer. So I'm I wasn't the one who asked them for money in the first place. I'm the relationship guy. And so when the relationship guy calls and says, Hey, we'd like to build a relationship with you, it's completely believable. When the closing guy says, Hey, I want to, you know, build a relationship with you, like, know if you really do or not. I think you've got one hand in my pocket. And so it it really makes my job a lot easier to do that. That makes a ton of sense. And I want to just go back to what you mentioned on number two with the whole telling the origin story over and over again to these new donors. Mm-hmm. Like that's such an, a key point. And if you think about it, like if you're going to connect with an organization, it's because you care about them and you understand what they do. And right. that whole origin story is so important because that's the story that got people to give the very first donations that helped found the organization. So there's some magic there with it. Even if you don't know what it is necessarily, people responded to it. That's why your organization exists today. So why not keep telling that over and over again to your new donors so that they can respond in the same way your past donors have? Exactly. And we we do that for our existing donors, our repeat donors as well. We might phrase it a little differently. As you've probably heard several times, mm-hmm. our CEO moved down to Florida with $50,000 in seed money. And now we're a multi-million dollar organization. That didn't happen overnight. We're now hitting our 10th year. And then we go from there. But a new donor doesn't know that. And so we we say, hey, you know what? Let me just go back to the very beginning you know, this was, this was an idea. This was a dream. And that dream has developed over time. It wasn't this big to start off with, but it was still big at the beginning and now it's bigger and we're going even bigger. And so as you invest with us, you're part of something really big and something that's growing. And when you are able to say that, it also reassures that new donor that, okay, you actually do need me. Because that's a key point too with these new donors. How many times like, oh, well, we need you. We're we're in this pandemic. Okay. A lot of people realize that that organizations need help. 
well, what about now? Okay, right. now we've got, you know, people have $10,000 in stimulus checks. Where's that money going? Our organization saying, hey, you know, you have, if you're in a position where you don't need that money and you don't know where to give it, you know, we're a local, you know, we're a local soup kitchen in, in the area and we're feeding, you know, however many families a week, we could feed a lot more. And there are still people who are hurting these days. Okay. But do people know that? You know, we're on the on the policy side. We're fighting this major policy initiative. Do your donors know that? Do they know that they're needed? Because that's something too. They're buying into a mission, but they're also buying into your work. But they want to know that it was a good investment and that they're needed. If people aren't needed, they opt out. And so with these new donors, if four out of five people have never heard from you, they don't know what their money did, or they don't think that you need them anymore, they're not going to give again. And of course, we all know that money was spent. It's gone. And yes, we need more to advance the mission. Right. So I want to break this down and dive a little deeper. Uh, one of the, I think, critical components we were just talking about with one out of five new donors don't give again. One part of that is this whole idea we've just been talking about where people don't treat them differently and don't help them understand the organization in that first you know, couple of months through that first year. And then the second part of that is sometimes you're looking in the wrong place for these donors and they might be not great fits for your organization. So can we dive a little bit into the different types of retention and what people should be thinking about when they look at their retention numbers? Because it's more than just that top line, you know, donors who gave last year, you know, 60% of them gave this year. Can you just talk a little bit about your thinking and how you look at that? Yeah, absolutely. So we we have the new donor retention of ours is around half. So it's not percent, 100%, but it's about 50%. So about half of our new donors stick around, which again, it's harder to keep those new donors in, but, and it's, you know, I'm not satisfied with 50%. I'm not stopping, but it's a heck of a lot better than 20%. And then our overall donor retention is 82%, which I'm extremely proud of. If a nonprofit has, I think it's 70% retention or higher, you're in the top three to 5% of all don- of all organizations. And so for us to have 82% overall, which is our highest ever uh, in a year where nationally retention is going down, I'm super excited about that. Within that, we have major donors. Uh, so we, we have a line of uh, $20,000 and above. And that's what we call our major donors. And then we have our mid-level donors, which are the four-figure donors, $1,000 up to that 20. And then we have our minor donors, which give under a thousand. And so we split those and we, we analyze those and see what our retention rates are for each of those, for each of those folks. And then where they came in for the first time and how we got those donors in the door and then what happens with those over time. And so whether it's a grantor, we're looking at we're looking at those, we're looking at individual donors, we're looking at corporate donors, we're looking at the source of the donor. So there are all sorts of different ways where you can slice it to analyze which types of donors are your most successful, most most loyal donors. And then going from there and that's that helps us figure out where to concentrate our time. So if we if we have someone that came through direct mail and just as an aside, we don't do direct mail prospecting. So we we still do direct mail house file letters. So our current donors, we send mail pieces to them a few times a year. But even then, as I said earlier, we don't ask all the time. So we'll sometimes they're just pure updates. You know, I don't know about you if you're on the house file mailing list or if you get a bunch of direct mail these days, but most of what I get, it's asking every time. And we don't do that because I'm in the relationship business. And so I want to, I want, even with our smaller donors, I want to affirm that they made a right choice rather than asking all the time. So that's just an aside, but we've, for us, we found that our, our donors, our most successful donors come in through a referral. And that first time that we're able to get an in-person meeting with them, if we're able to do that, and that's how we establish our relationship with them, then it's a very successful relationship over time. And it, it grows. And that's true for individuals and grantors for us. 
But we've analyzed that, we've looked back, and we figured that out. And so going forward, that helps us figure out who we want to approach because not everyone's going to love us. We know that, first of all. But second of all, some people are going to kind of like us and other people are going to really be into what we're doing. And we would rather spend extra time and the extra effort to go after that smaller pool of donors that are really going to be into what we're doing because that's going to pay off for us in the long run rather than have a huge donor base where people are kind of into us, but where they're number 20. I want to be somebody's top five because what that means is that they're so invested when we go to them and say, hey, we've got our next big project, we're doing a $5 million expansion, then they're going to say, you know what, count me in for a million. You know, you go to someone that's only kind of into you and you say, you know, you're doing a million dollar capital campaign, for example. And you go to them like, oh yeah, that's cool. You're repainting your church. Awesome. I'll give you 10 bucks. It's going to take 100,000 people to do that. But if you have a handful of people that are giving 20 to 50 to $100,000, you're going to rebuild your church, rebuild your building or you know whatever it is that you're trying to do. You're going to get that done and you're going to be able to point to a handful of really specific people and then be able to say, look what you did. And it's a, it's a win-win situation all around. Right. And it's such a fundamentally different way of looking at retention. So instead of beating yourself up, like if you're having poor retention, if you dive into your numbers, so you said how you divided them up by size of the donor. So if you go and you see like, okay, we have great retention right now with our major donors, our mid-level donors, for you guys, it's 1,000 to 19,000 a year. Those people were doing okay. And then our small donors were not retaining well. Well, that's a very different story than if you blended those all together And it looked like you had like, say, a 50% overall retention rate. By breaking them up, you can see, okay, where do we need to focus our attention? And then you can ask the next question is, are we reaching out to the right types of donors uh, when you look at the source? So if you're looking at your retention by source, you can see what Dan just said, where referrals have really high retention, or at least that's what FGA has found and other nonprofits that have come through our training have found the same thing you can then go focus on referrals because you know, if I can get them to agree to that first donation, there's a much higher likelihood that the second, the third, the fourth donation will happen. Absolutely. One of the things that we tried actually before I started was events. You know, events are very, we're in Southwest Florida is where we're headquartered and events are very popular there. And so what what we did is we had a bunch of luncheon or speaker a speaker series where we invited a, a whole bunch of people to come. We would have an outside guest speaker, an author, you know, something that connected with our mission but wasn't us directly speaking. Had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people attend those, and nobody gave twice. So we stopped doing those. Right. So it's more like you're a speaker's bureau or exactly. something. Like exactly. Like bringing in interesting people, but only they were there for the interesting they person. Were- Exactly. They weren't tied to our mission. They were tied to whoever it was that was speaking. We still do events, but we've restructured those in a way where we're still the main focus. We might have a guest speaker. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, depending on the year and outside situations. But people who are coming, we want to vet them. If they haven't heard of us, if they're a prospect, then we want to make sure that they are like-minded, that they were interested in what we're doing. And we try to have them come with someone who is a current donor. So in a way, it's still a referral. Yes, it's an event, but it's a referral factory. It's an easy way for us to tell our current donors, hey, you have three to five people in your building, in your neighborhood, in your network who might like what we're doing and don't know about us yet. And it's not their job to close the deal. We just are asking, you know, bring someone that has some capacity and might be interested. And then it's our job to follow up. But we've had some very successful donors come out of those where we had we had one, one gentleman who first came, liked what we did, didn't give. We followed up, came to an event the next year, really liked what we were doing, gave us a four-figure gift. And now is a six-figure donor. 
Wow. And so it's just, it's one of those where it was a referral, but that person came to an event, figured out that they liked us. We cultivated them and then growing that person from a small gift initially to now, you know, one of our, one of our top major donors, super bought into the mission. It also, that particular example went from, there was one area of our mission that this donor really liked and over a couple years broadened it. So now the donor gives an unrestricted gift and gives a lot more money. And so it's, it's one of those where we don't do project-based fundraising. The donor kind of opted in to do a project-based gift the first, the first time just to kind of test us out. He's a new donor. It's doing what a lot of smart businessmen and women do. You test. And so that's, that's something that we had to keep in mind is that, yeah, we love what we're doing, but we're not as familiar, you know, people aren't as familiar with us as we are. And so, you know, people are kind of dipping their foot in the water. Well, what we want to do is get those people that when they dip their toes in the water, it's a five or six figure dipping. <laughs> and so, you know, if somebody can dip their toes in the water for a hundred bucks, Hey, that's awesome. I'm not going to turn away a hundred dollars. But if someone can dip their toes in and you know what, I give you a $20,000 first time gift, that means based on our history, that person's pretty likely to be a six figure or seven figure donor within a few years. And that's huge because money advances the mission. And if we're going to change the world like we want to, we have to have those major donors behind us who are funding our work. Right. And that's such a key concept too, that very few donors come in at the six figure level. Very you know, few, right? Like, and almost no donors come in at the seven-figure level right. for a first gift. That's like almost unheard of. You see it sometimes, like uh, during the pandemic. You know, Jack Dorsey was writing these, you know, hundred million dollar checks to food banks and stuff like that. Right. Again, he might have had a relationship ahead of time with these organizations, but it's very rare to have that first donation be that high because these donors do want to test. They want to find out how the organization runs, how they respond. And then once they have that established level of trust, then they'll move up and be excited to give even more. Just as one like side point, which I think you guys do really well with your events, is you don't charge your donors for tables. So right. when you're saying they're they're bringing guests to the table, people like them, they're you know filling a table or filling a half table with a couple of friends, these are free seats. So it's not like you're going back and nickeling and diming these donors. You know, they gave a hundred thousand and you're asking for a twenty five hundred dollar table sponsorship. Right. You're just saying, invite some friends. We're going to give you a good uh, we're going to give you a good event, good show and be able to showcase the work you're supporting. Exactly. Trevor, that was something that we learned uh, probably the hard way. When we restructured our event, the first year that we did our event, we started off with a $300 a person ticket price, and we had all of 10 people sign up. And we got some feedback from our board members and from some of our other donors, and we lowered that to $35 a, a person. We still wanted some skin in the game, but you know, make it make it much more accessible. Well, first of all, logistically, it was a pain in the rear. Because that $35 doesn't count as a tax as a tax deductible donation. So the gift receipts are more complicated. They didn't really give. Do you include them in your retention or not? All of these questions, much more complicated than it needs to be. And for you know, a hundred people, we've got $3,500. I can tell you the time that it took to figure all of those logistics out, we lost money on that $3,500. There's an opportunity cost there. It just wasn't worth it. The next year when we did events, we said, there's no charge. First of all, a lot of people in our area anyway, don't do that. And so that was a draw. Like really, are you're big enough where you can just host an event and not charge to get in? So that was kind of a, an eye-opener for some of our potential prospects, almost a, a level of credibility. Wow, you guys are different, interesting, and it kind of spiked interest. But also logistically, it was, much, it was much more practical. And then what we were able to do is we were able to grow our event exponentially because, okay, yes, you get some people that are coming for a free lunch, but you also get people who are busy 
who are very interested in what we do. And if you have some sort of barrier as low as maybe a $35 ticket could be, it's still a friction point. And if you remove those friction points, do I want a $35 one-time ticket or do I want a $15,000 gift? Obviously, I want the second one. I would much rather have somebody come and we pay for the lunch one time and then they get to know us. We're able to have a follow-up meeting after that where we never would have been able to get in touch with them anyway, but now they're already interested. And there's something a little bit of human nature where we did something nice for them. And so they want to do something nice for us. And we're not manipulating people. Right. It's just a human nature of reciprocity. And so we have you know, just a small little gift. It's just a couple pieces of custom chocolate that we give to them and we shake hands. I mean, before COVID and then, you know, now we fist bump and we just have these little things that say you're important and we value you. And this is how you're going to be treated when you're part of us. And it piques their interest. And we get a lot of really great responses. Our event this year, we've already had a handful of new gifts come in And some of those are at the four-figure level. We also have a pledge for a five-figure gift from our event. And so just that one cycle, you know, we've paid for our event and we didn't have, you know, we didn't have a a cover charge uh, for lack of a better term to get in the door. Right. And it's, we just had another nonprofit that has gone through our trainings adopting the same strategy. And he was texting me earlier this week and saying how much his donors love doing the event this way. He said, because they didn't feel like they were making an ask of their friends. It, they actually felt like they were giving something to their friends. So it even changed that reciprocal dynamic with their own referral because they're giving them a good event. They have a speaker at their event and the people were excited to see. And they were allowed to, they were able to give them seats to see this speaker that they knew their friends would want to see. So I could talk about the events for a lot, long time. And we have some great episodes on the podcast with Kelly Shackleford talking about their prospecting events, very similar strategy. Then also Becky Lewis, uh, one of their first episodes we did, where she talks about how they've done events with really high-end speakers like Peyton Manning, Tim Tebow for her Christian uh, school in Dallas. Um, So there's a lot of strategies you can go into specifically on finding new donors. But so I'd encourage any listener to go check those ones out. But I want to dive into the specifics of how you build the relationship with the donor because you have a very systematic approach. This is a system. This isn't magic. It's you executing a customized system for each of your donors. So can you walk us through, you did a little bit with the new donor, but now can you walk us through what it's like if I donated $100,000 to FGA, what is that going to be like and throughout the year? How am I going to experience that as a donor? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll hold you to that pledge too. Oh yeah. Uh, the <laughs> checks in the mail. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. What we did. And for, for those who are listening and starting off or not sure what their system is, or they don't have a system in place. The first thing I want to say is that we didn't get here overnight. And so as I'm explaining this, don't beat yourself up. That's not the point of this. It's something, something, and as an example to shoot for, and it also has to fit what your nonprofit does and your nonprofit's system. This fits our system. This fits our people. It fits our CEO and our relationship management style um, really well. Our system, we have, we kind of on a zero to five star, we've built what we hope anyway is a five star system. And what we're, what we're doing is we have somebody that is at that level. We want to make sure periodically throughout the year that they are receiving updates on their investment. So I like to think of it, my dad was a financial planner. I like to think of it as this is their investment and we need to give them an ROI statement on their, their investment. Well, I get, I get things, you know, I have a small account for each of my kids. I get once per quarter. And I like to see when it goes up. I don't like to see as much when it goes down, but at least I know what the value is, right? I know what my ROI is. And I know if I need to take action or if I can just let it sit because things are humming along. Well, we do the same thing with our with our top donors. 
So we have we have a system where first we immediately thank them and we try to thank them a minimum of four times and our goal is seven times. And so what we want to do is kind of a thank you bomb. So we get the gift in, we do an email, we do a phone call acknowledgement, we do a formal written letter and usually there's some sort of it's it's an inked signature. It's not a it's not a printed, you know, a pre-designed signature. We don't have 20 million donors. And so, I mean, even if you did figure out a way to make it more personalized. And then we also have the um, written thank you note. And so we send four versions of a thank you within a couple of weeks of receiving the gift. And then throughout the next few months, we'll send up updates. Each of those updates, we again, reaffirm how much that we value their partnership and that we're thankful for them. And so over the course of the year, certainly they're getting thanked seven to 10 times. So that's really such a big contrast with a lot of different nonprofits where you get the single letter. You know, my wife and I, we just gave to a nonprofit last year and we got a single thank you letter. And I think we had one follow-up communication throughout the year. There was a video that was sent, but I really have no idea what's happened. And it's been a crazy 12 months. So they're asking to meet again, but I don't know what's gone on with their organization. I assume they're doing good things. I mean, I trust them. That's why we gave them money, but we don't know. Right. And confusion is the enemy of the gift. If the donor doesn't know what's going on, that's not their fault, right? That's our fault. So what we want to do is make sure that they do know, first of all, that they're thanked, that they're appreciated, and then also what that they're just doing. And so that's why we do multiple thank yous. When you only do one thank you, you're basically even. And you didn't really thank them. If somebody gives you a present, it's expected that you say thank you. That's that's not over and above. That's expected, right? So if all we're doing is thanking them one time, that's expected. You haven't built anything on the relationship because you're at zero. If you don't thank them, you're below zero, which you need to stop doing. So at least thank them once. But that's why we do multiple thank yous because it helps build that relationship. You never want to get to the ask and have it in doubt in the donor's mind that they did well. So we want to make sure throughout the year, and we have a system in place where we have periodic updates from our CEO. So our our CEO will do the first draft and then I will take a look at it. I'll edit it down. And then we'll have our, you know, one other person on our writing team review it just for grammar and, and that kind of thing. So that it's in it's in the CEO's voice. But all of the editing, all that process doesn't you know, have to take up the CEO's time. And then we'll send those, you know, half a dozen times or so throughout the year, once every four to six weeks on average. So six to eight of those throughout the year. And those are VIP updates that it's just, it's not a lot, but it shows, you know, we are doing things throughout the year. It's not just a once done kind of thing. And again, it's like that quarterly statement, at least, right? Where we're giving somebody an update on their on their ROI. So then when it's 11 months, you know, 10 to 11 months, and I'm scheduling that meeting, that ask meeting on the closer's behalf, they know what we've been doing. And they're also excited to hear more because they know that something else is coming. We've built that into the relationship. So we thank them a ton. We add in personalization. So the customized emails, casual interactions, we'll do phone calls throughout the year, not ask phone calls, but phone calls throughout the year, phone call updates. We might see some of our donors at at other events other than ours. So something that we do, if there are other events that are in our space, we'll go to those and uh, we'll either buy into those or we'll attend those. And again, we're not making asks there. Don't be tacky. If you're attending somebody else's event, it's their event. You know, don't hit up a donor that's you know there for another reason. It doesn't make you look good anyway, and so just don't do that. We actually had somebody do that at one of our events, and our our donor let us know and said, 
yeah, I, that was, that was kind of weird. And I, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry about that. And the donor said, oh, it's not your fault. It just helps me know what that organization is like. Jeez, like, geez. Oh, geez. All right. Well, you know, so don't ask for money at somebody else's event. Right. But you can have a conversation with your donor because they support right. both groups and have a friendly conversation deep in your relationship. And even if they don't, hey, what is it that you do? Okay, well, I work for a nonprofit and this is this is what we do. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, you leave it up, you leave it up to them and you follow up later. You don't, you know, it's just again, think long-term relation. This is not a transaction. You're not a car salesman. You don't have to close the deal in 30 seconds or you're getting fired. You know, just have a have a different mindset with that. And then something that works for us is to have some fun. So we try to do fun things throughout the year where we acknowledge our relationship with with donors. We had a, a donor whose business celebrated their 40th anniversary, which is just amazing. And so we wanted to do something that acknowledged that, you know, acknowledged their success with their business. Well, our CEO, Taryn, loves designer socks. And so I was thinking, you know, and I guess the every once in a while, it'll just, hey, you know, nice socks, whatever, during meetings. And so I thought, how funny would it be if we got socks for this donor? Taryn could wear them. They could be a gift for the donor. And so we, we ended up where we got the logo of the uh, of the person's company with permission. We're not selling these, but it was with permission. So we got their we got their logo and put it on socks with uh with the 40th like happy 40th anniversary, their logo. And so then we so at the meeting, it was an update meeting, not an ask meeting. So again, it was just kind of fun. So at the end, Taryn Taryn's meeting with this with this major donor and says, Oh, you know, by the way, I have this for you. And you can, you know, you can have it at the end. Well, the donor was excited about it, opens it up, says, Oh, these are amazing. Takes them out, you know, is looking at them. There was another very important person in that meeting. So we knew that the other very important person that was in that meeting also got a pair of socks that kind of broke the ice with this meeting. And it was a, it was one of the best, most fun, relaxed update meetings. Again, we weren't asking for money, but it just, it set a tone. And I think it kind of turned the relationship to the next, to a next level where we really are partners. Well, then the donor came back and said, and we did this with our own, with private money, by the way, so that it wasn't using donor funds to do donor gifts. So just also clarify that. But the donor came back and said, could we get these for other family members and other key staff at the organization? And so I, they, at their company, so it's, it's, you know, been four years in business, but it's, it's still a family run business. Well, they have a company picnic. And so company picnic, all of the top, you know, executives and the founding family members of the business are wearing the 40th anniversary socks. I mean, how, how awesome is that? What I love about that story is here you spent some time thinking about what would be really nice with the donor. You know, you could have said, okay, it's their 40th anniversary. We're going to say, you know, at the meeting, we're going to say, you know, happy 40th anniversary and look like you did your homework, which is also would have been good. But you took it a step further and really thought about like, how do I make this experience really unique to them? And what can I do to make something customized for this donor who's giving you a lot of money? And then you have all of these ripple effects because you took the time to really think this through. And, you know, I'm sure it took several hours of work designing the socks and doing all these things. But now he's telling his whole team, his family members are also understand the work you guys do. And he's talked about it. And so it's just such a different experience because you spent a couple of hours really intentionally thinking about how to make this a really great experience for the donor. Exactly. And that's a lot of fun as well. I mean, it's not just fun for the donor, it's fun for me. And so that's something as you're thinking about your cultivation plans, it doesn't have to be torture and it shouldn't be. I mean, if you're really struggling 
you're probably not the cultivator. Get somebody that thinks about this stuff naturally, that really likes to dive into this relational aspect. You know, if if you have somebody that's thinking, I don't know, I don't really want to do this. I would rather just ask for money. Hey, you found your closer. Uh, right. You know, that's, or, or you have somebody like, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. I'd rather just interact with them once and get and tell them about our mission. Okay. You found your connector. So people are going to veer naturally toward one of those three. And one thing we've found through our research too, to like build on that is good cultivators tend to give really meaningful gifts to people. Like not like really high end gifts, but like really meaningful gifts. So if you have somebody who, you know, they always give that perfect gift, they'd probably make a good cultivator because they just think differently and they think about what would really resonate, what would mean a lot to that person from their perspective, not, you know, from the person's perspective, not the right. uh, gift giver's perspective. So we're almost out of time here, but for organizations that are looking to start this, in our workshop, we talk about how you should start with three-star donor experience. Then once you have that system down, and you just alluded to this, you can start thinking about the next step and having a four-star experience and then the five-star experience. But don't try to do it all at once. So can we just talk about briefly, if someone was looking to replicate this in their organization, what would a three-star experience look like? And then we can go into four and five-star. Absolutely. So three-star... You want to make sure that your thank you system is solid and it's in place. And I would aim for four thank yous within two to three weeks of a gift. So a gift comes in, as soon as it comes in, as soon as possible, make a phone call. If you leave a voicemail, that's fine, but at least there's an immediate acknowledgement. If you... And then if you have somebody else to do this, so it's coming from different people, that's ideal, but send an email as well. And so that's two of them right away. So that's instant communication. And that's within the first 24 to 48 hours. They, you received the gift and you thanked them. All right. So now you're on par. Then third, send your formal thank you letter. And this formal acknowledgement, it only thanks them. Do not ask for money. Absolutely. That's like Dante's seventh level of donor hell. Don't do that. So make sure that it's sincere. Make sure that it's that you're thankful. Don't ask for anything. And then there's nothing wrong with adding. So you have the text language on there. You have something that reaffirms they made a good choice. And then it's also saying what you're going to do with the money. So that's in a one-page formal acknowledgement. Nothing wrong with scribbling a little handwritten note in the bottom corner. Leave some space on the letter so that you can do that as well. And then send a handwritten thank you note. And those don't have to be right away. So I would send your acknowledgement again a couple days at the so that you know they get all of that acknowledgement because it'll take a while for the mail to get there. So the thank yous will be spread out naturally. And then send a thank you note and you know maybe a week or so after. So then they're getting a phone call, an email, handwritten or the formal acknowledgement, and then a handwritten note. So all of that, they're they're going to remember feeling appreciated. That's your three star. And have you ever had a donor say you thank them too much? I've not ever had that yet. I'll let you know if that happens. And so then the other the other thing that you want to do for your three-star cultivation system is set up one to two meetings per year for the closer. So we have it set up where our system, I as the cultivator, tell the closer when we're ready to meet, basically. So I keep track of, does the person want to meet more than once a year? We only ask once a year, but some people like to meet twice a year or maybe a quarterly video call. So set that system up, put it on your calendar, and then just follow your system. So that's what I would say is a three-star service level. The next, the next level then for a four-star would be to start adding in your personalizations. So these casual interactions that I was referring to earlier, the VIP emails that we talked about phone calls after a major win. So in that's not in a three-star service, but you add that when you're at your four-star service. And those are like periodically throughout the year. Exactly. You know, something happens that's really good. 
your CEO exactly. or even you just call up and right. tell them about it. And that's a great point, Trevor. It doesn't have to be the CEO, even for our major donors. Again, I'm the cultivation guy. So I interact with all of our donors. You know, some, some are the $100 donors, some are the $100,000 donors, but it's not unusual for me to call those folks. So work that out as well. It doesn't all have to be on the CEO. So figure out who the right person is for that relationship. The other thing is the person who's managing the relationship can be the cultivator. So there are donors that I don't interact with, but I, I tell other people in the organization, hey, it's time to do this, but I'm the one managing that system. So that's that's the four, the four-star process. And then adding one other thing for a four-star, those casual interactions, other events, off-the-cuff emails. So not even necessarily a major win, but hey, it's been a while since we've heard from this person. Just send them a two-line email. And something, you know, again, so that we're that we're adding that. And then starting to add in a little bit of flavor of personality. So it, you know, if the CEO is a real mathematical mind, then it has to fit that. If the CEO is more relational, then it has to fit that. You know, it has to be true, it has to be consistent. Then the five star is when you add in the fun, you add in those individual sock gifts, you have the those other meaningful interactions. You go above and beyond a regular expected process and make it hyper individualized. And so that what that looks like for us is going through each of our major donors and putting one to two to three things on the calendar of throughout the year, we're going to send them this, or we're going to do this. It may or may not connect to the mission. So this is where it's hyper-relational as well. We want to bring them back and tie it into the mission, but sometimes it is just an acknowledgement of the relationship. But if you're not sending thank you notes right away, don't work on socks. Right. (laughs) Start with your three star and build up to it. We didn't do, we didn't get there overnight and don't feel like you have to either. Right. And that's such a good point. Like, don't beat yourself up. You cannot change the past. If there's some like holes in your system now, just start with a three star, move to the four star. And then once those systems are in place, then you can increase that personalization. Uh, And there's some great books to get ideas on this. There's Setting the Table uh, with Danny Myers. He's a restaurateur of a bunch of high-end restaurants in New York City, has a bunch of great tips on customer service. And then there's also Never Lose a Customer by Joey Coleman. That really is very helpful, especially on those first 100 days that you go through for a new donor, how you can think about it. And we have a podcast episode with him. I think the whole thing with this is you're trying to create like a Ritz-Carlton level experience for your donors. And if you think about like a major donor, they're used to having Ritz-Carlton experience. You know, for us, that might be, you know, once, you know, every 10 years, you might stay at something that nice. But for them, it's a fairly common occurrence. And if you can match what they're used to having with your nonprofit, they're much happier to give again. And they know you run really well and that you're doing good work. Exactly. It also, Trevor, lends to credibility. If you are working with someone that is used to going to the Ritz and you meet them at a Hotel Six, how is that going to go? That's just not, it's just not a sustainable relationship. They're going to question either you're really cheap or you're not successful. Either way, that's not a good seed to plant. Right. So when I started in development, one of my first donor meetings was at a Ritz-Carlton and I was really uncomfortable. We were, were in the lobby of this really fancy hotel and I'm thinking I am getting charged a lot of money just to park <laughs> here for a few hours and this lady lives here. I mean, this, I mean, this is, she stays here for a month at a time. I mean, we're in totally different worlds. I need to get my mindset in her world because that's where she lives. And if I'm going to connect with her, then I need to think like her. And so that's a, that's a mindset as well. It's not wrong that these people are successful and that they're used to high class, high level service. What is wrong is if we keep a mindset of poverty 
where we think, oh, well, we can't do that because, and then whatever, fill in the blank. I'm not saying that you need to spend a half a million dollars on one donor meeting. Don't be foolish. But at the same time, when we moved our events from not the Ritz to the Ritz, you know, I had a donor tell me, you know, the first time I came to one of these, it was a few years ago. It was a small room. It was dark. It was at whatever, you know, some name, nameless hotel. She didn't even remember where it was. Now you have the ballroom at the Ritz. You're doing so much better. And I was thinking back, it was only a couple of years ago. And yes, we've grown a lot since then, but we're not that different. I mean, at least I didn't think we were. But in her mind, we've gone from an average nonprofit a few years ago to a top level, really credible nonprofit now who can have an event at the Ritz. And here's a little secret for your event planners. The Ritz gives the rooms for free for nonprofits. Oh, wow. So it's really, I mean, the the food and everything else, I'm not saying that it's cheap. By the time you add you add in all of the other costs at other events, at other venues, it's more, but the bang for your buck, again, it's that mindset. Oh my goodness, you can have an event at the Ritz? You must be a really legitimate organization. That's what they're thinking. They're, most donors are not thinking, how dare you waste money at the Ritz? Right. Well, and that's such a big mindset shift because it's not like you're... N- it's not that you're not honoring the donor's money by having it there. It's just making it so it fits their world, where they like to go, what they like to do. And then if it reflects that, they're more likely to give. Exactly. Um, and it's just good business. You know, it's the same reason like for your 10-year anniversary, you might go to a really high-end restaurant with your spouse. It's not like you don't do that every day, but you do it to signify, you know, significance and really important occasions. So- To wrap up, we always like to have and challenge our listeners to do something different because they listen to this podcast. So what would you say is the number one thing you would like our listeners to try to implement in their organization after listening to you? So mindset-wise, so this is really high level, and then I'll give a specific. How about that? So really high level, have a long-term mindset. Seven-figure donors currently did not start off giving us a million dollars. You're in this for the long haul. So we're not transactional. We're not in sales. It's a partnership. So have a growing pie mentality. You know, I'm competitive. I love it when our donors say that we're their number one organization. But realistically, not all of our donors are going to have us as our number one. But it's my job to keep make, to make sure anyway that they don't go lower than they currently are and to bump them up. And that does happen. So when you approach your donors with a long-term partnership mindset, you think differently, you approach things differently, and it starts coming through your writing, how you communicate, your emails, everything, even your pitch. When it's focused on a partnership mentality rather than a transactional mentality, it starts coming through and you might not notice the shift, but your donors will. So high level, make sure that you have a long-term mindset. And as you're doing things, ask periodically, you know, is this planting seeds for the future in a good way? Or is this destructive? Or is this just something that I need to stop doing? So that's, that's at a high level kind of theoretical as far as practical, call all of your donors and thank them. It not, you know, not all at once. It doesn't have to be done all today, but go through, start with your top donors, say your top three, and pick up the phone and call them. I'm sure they're busy, but you might get them ans- you might get them to answer. You'd be surprised how many times our donors answer, especially these days with more people at home. But call your donors. And then when you've called your top three and those conversations are really fun, then it gives you motivation to call your next three. And then as you know, if this is the CEO, if you're the CEO listening and you're busy, I get it. Have somebody on your staff call them, have your development team or your development person. If you're a small shop, like, uh, like I was when I was number two, just call your donors, talk to them, thank them. Like you said earlier, I've never had anybody say I've thanked them too much. So thank your donors. Wow, that's 
great advice, Dan. And it's always fun talking with you and learning about everything that you're doing and the new ways you're connecting with donors. So I just want to say thank you for being on the show. And to our listeners, where can they find out more about FGA and follow you? Yeah, so the FGA, T-H-E-F-G-A dot org is our website. And I'm not a big social media guy, but I believe it's just at the FGA on all of the social media sites that you can do that. And then uh, for me personally, you can find me, my LinkedIn page, I think is searchable. I'll have to check that. But uh, feel free if you have questions about our organization or if you have cultivation questions, you can email me. And that email is pretty simple. It's just my first name, dan at thefga.org. Great. Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you're interested in our upcoming workshop, visit our website at sevenfigurefundraising.com. We conduct these workshops twice a year in March and September, and we've broken these workshops up so you can take them live online with six two-hour courses spread over three weeks. We'll send you a workbook and other class materials to make it really easy for you to follow along. In fact, this is what one of our students, Austin, said about his experience in our workshop. Hi, my name is Austin Brooks. I'm an executive director of a nonprofit called Midland Institute for Entrepreneurship. I took seven-figure fundraising 18 months ago. And since that course, um, two things I want to share. One is the results. Two is what I didn't expect. And the results as a nonprofit, even though we reach into 10 states, even though we're working in 320 high schools, um, we've always had a pretty small donor base. And what's been so powerful in the results that we've seen since this course is I've successfully been able to recruit and add some new donors that had never previously been given to our organization. And then more importantly, there's this idea that's going to be shared in this course called the dynamic dozen. You have to take the course to figure out what it's about. But within our dynamic dozen, we had five donors increase their giving in a big way. And between that and the new donors, this has been a game changer for our growing nonprofit. But the second thing that I really took away that really matters is just the mindset shift. What I wasn't expecting was how much my mindset needed to shift, how much I had to shift my poverty thinking or my scarcity mindset to realizing that whether there's a recession, whether we lose a couple donors, if your organization is doing good work, more people need to know about it. And so the confidence that I gained in terms of talking to high level individuals who believe in our mission has just grown. And what's been more um, impressive than anything is the proof has been in the actual donors we've gained. So if I can do this, I believe you can. You can't miss this course. You got to take it. If you're interested in attending, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. We hope to see you there. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please take 60 seconds to leave a review. Thanks a lot and good luck with your fundraising.